0: So, when we were first invited to offer this retreat here at IMS a couple of years ago, they wanted us to pick a topic to kind of distinguish it from all all the other retreats here in some way. So, in reflecting on what uh, has really been of the foundation for our ongoing practice and continuing practice and benefit from practice, we selected this, this list of what is called the paramis. And the paramis are the forces of purity in the mind. And when I say the forces of purity, they're the forces of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. That we cultivate and when perfected allow the mind to open to the deepest truths. And we we thought it was a particularly good topic because we're householders. Most of us are not monks or nuns, exception of Irinani. We might take up robes for a short period of time, but for most of us we're busy with household obligations, social responsibilities, jobs, political participation, and there's a lot of interaction. There's just a lot of relationship. We might say that our life is all about relationships, intimate relationships, economic relationships, personal relationships, social relationships, political relationships. And in relationship, there is so much potential for Happiness or suffering? The paramis will give you a good idea of the range of relationships and the, the, the texture of the kinds of relationships we have. So we thought it was particularly useful because the understanding in the Buddhist tradition is that liberating understanding the wisdom, the deepest wisdom that comes through insight that frees the mind from delusion and therefore suffering. The foundation for that liberating insight is the development of the paramis in the mind. So it's not that the paramis are a good, you know, secondary practice, but insight is really the practice for freedom. It's like The freedom that one achieves or recognizes or realizes is directly dependent on the development of the paramis in the mind. And you can see it in your own practice here. The more patient, the more understanding, the more open and loving, the more truthful we are with ourselves, uh, the more balanced we are, and these are all paramis, the more we can let go. We can see our stuff and let oh, so the paramis are. We could call it the prep work. You know, the preparatory practices for liberating insight. You can't go around them. You can't avoid them. You can't get. You, you can't kind of get liberated without them. It's like they are part and parcel of the path of liberation. So I want to speak about, or we'd we'd like to speak about them a little bit. Just giving you this overview. And then just to speak about how we can take these practices into our life at home, outside of retreat, let's say. Because that's where we're going to do the work in preparation for future retreats and future uh, opportunity to really disentangle the mind. So we've divided it up a little bit and... I'll speak some, and Kamala will speak some. Um, Generosity, the first parami we will speak about more this afternoon, so we're going to pass that one by now. And then, of course, the last two, metta, loving kindness and upeka, equanimity, we have practiced those intensively here, and of course you can practice those as much as you will as much as you find useful um, in your life. But I want to start by uh, speaking about sila or morality. Um, and we, we, we selected this uh, this quote here about morality, that virtue has non-remorse as its benefit. Non-remorse has gladness, gladness has joy, joy has serenity, serenity has happiness, happiness has concentration, concentration has insight, insight has non-attachment, and non-attachment has liberation. Actually, we could say that any of these paramis could follow the same sequence or, or a similar sequence, that we practice sila, the precepts, living with the precepts, in order to make the mind happy. Because ultimately, when the mind is happy, it relaxes. And when the mind is relaxed, it can open, and you can see what's going on. When the mind is tight and contracted, you know, you, you can't get close to it. You can't get through all the defenses, all the barriers, all the roadblocks in the mind. And so, Sila is the, the, the primary foundation of our relationships with one another, it rests on caring, caring, caring about yourself and your own sense of what's appropriate and uh, in relationship to others, but also caring about others and what they think and what they, uh, how they view what's right and what's harmful in relationship with one another's so it's not just that we can kind of do as we damn well please you can but that may not be the path to the stability of mind essential for deep insight for real happiness of mind secondly I might just add that I'm not sure well I'm sure but I don't want to impose it on you, that our societal standards are adequate for stability of mind. You might you might say, hey, our society allows this, expects this, you know, tolerates it, whatever kind of behavior uh, we may be considering, and use that as a justification. Hey, it's not illegal. <laughs> I'll do it, you know. I think that the path of awakening and really disentangling the heart from suffering and the cause of suffering requires a much more refined and nuanced understanding of what suffering is for oneself and in relationship with others. So while the law or societal norms might kind of keep you in the the bigger space, practice and true wisdom sometimes is going to um, the path is going to feel a little a little narrower, I think, uh, depending on how you, how sensitive you are to suffering and your own suffering and the suffering of others. So these these two uh, guardians of the world they're called, are Hiri and Otapa. They're the, the a sense of uh, modesty about your own uh, actions and a sense of consciousness or conscience. Uh, in relationship to others, what you do that you you care about how others think about you. There's a lot of talk and many people inquire about spiritual communities or who is my sangha, who is my spiritual community and how can you form one or recognize one. You already have one. Your spiritual community is composed of those people that you care how they think about you. It might be your parents, it might not, it might be your partner, it might be your friends. But that's that's who you are going to kind of keep in keep on the periphery or keep in your heart when you when you speak and act in relationship to others. You care about what they think about you. That's your community. And depending on the refinement of their understanding and their expectations, uh, that will guide you in your own uh, speaking and acting uh, in a way that doesn't harm your own sense of propriety and what's appropriate or theirs. So it takes uh, monitoring as we speak and as we act in the world. It takes monitoring how others interpret and respond and react to what we do and say. And we might be coming from the best of intention, but if it's consistently misunderstood and people take offense and are offended and hurt, while our intention is pure, we need to be a little more wise and skillful in how we express our intention. That's why all of these practices are mindfulness practices. We have to bring our awareness to what we're doing in practicing generosity, in practicing uh, speaking and, and acting carefully, in practicing uh, loving kindness. We bring our awareness so that we can learn and learn from our experience and grow in understanding. And then, because of that growth and understanding, we can, we can refine our practice of all of these paramis. It's a gradual path of learning from experience, Making adjustments, refining our understanding, continuing to practice and further increasing our understanding and liberation finally, I just want to mention that all of these practices are about letting go you know the four no- in the four noble truths you know the first is dukkha and the second is dukkha is caused by craving craving in some form of holding on, clinging, attachment. And so, of course, the way to the end of dukkha is letting go. However you can let go. You can let go of things. You can let go of your views and opinions. You can let go of your beliefs, your wrong beliefs. You can let go of stuff. You can let go of attachments. You can let go of, well, ultimately, let go of everything. And the paramis are the practices to monitor how you're doing, so to speak.
1: So the second parami is renunciation. Um, is it the second or the third? Yeah, all right. This renunciation, this word can be a scary word for us sometimes because uh, if you're like me, we like our things. You know, we like what we have, and what does does renunciation mean that we have to give everything up and live in a hut somewhere or wander the forests? And it's not like that at all, of course, because we're householders. I love the saying by Suzuki Roshi that uh, letting go isn't giving up the things of the world, or renunciation isn't giving up the things of the world. It means that we understand that they go away. We understand that they're not permanent. So we've had a couple of discussions about this in the hall, that of course we can uh, enjoy what we have as we have it, but if there is the wisdom that exists during that happiness that this is impermanent, actually that happiness is deeper, that happiness is greater. So there's actually a great sense of happiness that can come with renunciation, because during the time that we are experiencing whatever is pleasant, we're fully there for it. We really are present with what is happening. Renunciation is the first and the second of the four right efforts that Steve spoke about last night. One of them is to Avoid what is unwholesome because renunciation is really giving up the giving up, the letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. All of those unwholesome states of mind that are connected to or that are the precursor to even more refined unwholesome states of mind or particular unwholesome states of mind like um, greed may be yearning. It may be lusting, it may be a simple wanting, kind of stickiness of the mind, it may be asserting that we're right all the time, and uh, uh aversion can be something as simple as impatience, but it can go all the way to rage, so there's very various forms of experiences that we have in our hearts that we're acting out in our words and our deeds. That are harmful, so it's really giving these up, letting them go, avoiding them before they arise. Even maybe we can see that conditions are such um, in a certain situation when we're together with our friends and our family. Conditions are such that we know that aversion or ill will will arise in our own hearts and minds. So when that happens, when we see conditions in such a way, or even we begin to see aversion arising because of conditions, we guard, we guard ourselves well, bringing mindfulness there, bringing loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, whatever the accessible tool is for us. That's a way that we can avoid unwholesome states that have not yet arisen And when they have already arisen in our hearts, in the practice of equanimity, um, hopefully you've been understanding that when it has already arisen, this reactivity, which is either greed or hatred or various forms of it, when it has already arisen, can you develop the uh, antidote to that at that moment so that it can disperse so that it can be let go of, so this is also a kind of renunciation. I wanted to point out that in the um, in the phrase that was chosen here about renunciation, where it says a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment, this is not aversion. This heartfelt weariness and disillusion is a wisdom that arises, because we begin to see through um, just the experience of wanting gratification through approval, profit, and status, that this is a very shallow type of happiness. This is not a kind of happiness that really is worthwhile going after. So wisdom begins to see that, uh, begins to tire of this. And it's not a thought in the mind or an idea from someone else that we just take on and we live in that thought or that idea that was given by someone else, actually we begin to feel uh, a tiredness in the mind, a weariness about running after things that are not worth our human energy, that we see that we have... uh, we have a possibility of using that energy for other things. And so it recognizes that we're getting disillusioned by it. We're, um, we're not enchanted by it anymore. And so I feel in my own heart a gradual turning away from this and a turning towards what I call the Dharma, a greater truth. Steve and I, a year ago, or uh, several years ago, gave up chocolate for a year. It was a really um, interesting practice of renunciation. Just to say, we were at a place, um, a nice hotel near our home, where we had breakfast one day, and um, we were eating the dessert. You know, it was kind of heavy chocolate, and I started to say to Steve you know, when I really taste this with mindfulness, I'm not really even enjoying it. You know, the craving for it is stronger than the actual taste of it and enjoyment um, of it. So why don't we give it up? And I thought, you know, I was crazy to say that, but Steve said, okay, let's give it up. (laughs) And so... It wasn't really for me or for Steve giving up the chocolate, it was giving up craving. It was a practice of noticing when the craving of chocolate was arising and seeing if we could work with that craving and not feed the beast of craving over and over and over again, which just habituates it more. So it was a very interesting year. We learned that year that uh, Steve reminded me that key lime pie is not so bad. You know, why do we always have to choose something with chocolate and other things not so bad? And we also, I also learned uh, a lot about the agitation that craving causes in the mind. Just this incredible agitation that wants to be stopped by getting the craving uh, fulfilled. And then it is stopped temporarily. That agitation is stopped temporarily, but it's also fed. The habit pattern of that is also fed. So it comes up. Its head pops up again later on. It actually becomes stronger because it was fed. And so it comes up over and over and over again, So I wanted to see what would happen if that particular craving for chocolate were not always fed. So after a year or more than a year, we decided to go back and have what we usually have. And interestingly, I'm not as pulled to that particular dessert. But key lime pie, that's another thing maybe to bring our practice to or other things. So noticing craving and not feeding it um, was a great renunciation just to bring something practical as a way you can bring it into life. So find ways that you can practice with renunciation at home. Know that it's mostly giving up of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what it all boils down to.
0: The um, fourth parami is wisdom, or panya. And I think that what I'll, the piece I want to emphasize about practicing wisely uh, at home is um, there are many um, social, spiritual, political guides to life. The, the libraries are full of people and pundits willing to tell you how to live your life, to be wealthy or successful or good-looking or whatever. Out of all of the advice columns that you read and how-to books and workshops and other things that you might consider as support for you know, growing and, and navigating life in the 21st century here in the States or in the West, you might consider looking and reading what the Buddha had to say, too. You know, even though he did live 2,500 years ago, he had a lot of advice for practical people, you know, householders and of men and women and kids and responsibility of parents to children, children to parents, the responsibility of employers to employees, the responsibility of employees, the responsibility of students to, to their teachers and the responsibility of teachers to their students. And there's there's a lot to be discovered in there. Not all of it is kind of like directly applicable, but you can extract the uh, the, the, the big picture, the understanding that the Buddha was pointing to. And I think that, We don't really, um, some of us who who practice what we call mindfulness or we practice Buddhism or we want to be a Buddhist, well, a lot of us don't know anything about what the Buddha taught other than what we hear in uh, a a retreat. There are some really good uh, compilations of the Buddha's words. Some of it's pretty dense, but there's some really good uh, compilations of uh, what the Buddha actually taught that I find very inspiring for for my life and guiding, you know, how I approach uh, some of the ordinary challenges of uh, just living as a social human being. So I, I want to encourage you to uh, consider uh, who it is in your life that you're taking advice from as to how you could or should live in order to be happy, because most mostly it's getting advice on how to be happy, you know and uh, you know the advice is only as good as the source, and if you really look at the source of where a lot of advice is coming from, you might reconsider whether that's really going to be sufficient uh, and uh, adequate for the direction, the full path of awakening that, that we've embarked on. So that's one piece. The second piece is pay attention because we're making decisions all the time that affect our happiness, that affect our life. And if we make decisions that end up causing more suffering, more entanglement, more confusion, more fear, desire, aversion, um, we should learn from that. that That's not a That's not a very wise decision. Maybe it was. Maybe it felt right. Maybe it felt good. Maybe other people suggested it and approved it. But if it didn't cause, if it caused unhappiness, then it needs to be reviewed and we have to try to find another way. Wisdom grows from paying attention to your experience. You can't really acquire wisdom from a book. You can get advice from a book or from a teacher, but we have to apply that to our own life in the way we will and learn from that. And if we learn as we learn from our personal experience, then we know for ourselves from our own direct experience that something is so, that's wisdom. So in order to know the way it is for ourselves, we have to practice mindfulness. Act with careful intention. Notice the result. Understand the result and reapply it or reinvest it in uh, further decisions. And just grow incrementally, kind of wandering until we find... The path of, well, maybe uh, least suffering yeah. Oh yeah, I did speak about energy last night, the virya, the different kinds of right effort. And then Kanti, patience. Uh, you know it's interesting. This, this quote that we picked here for patience. The Buddha said, "Patience is the supreme virtue." Upandita puts it this way, nothing is accomplished without patience. And it's said that uh, after the Buddha's awakening, as he taught others, and they also uh, awoke to the truth and freed their hearts from entanglement, that for the first 20 years, those who joined the order of monks, nuns weren't, I don't know what year the nuns order was started but let's just say the monks those who joined the monks they were all fully enlightened beings they didn't need any rules there were no rules formed in the first 20 years of the Buddha and his gathering of, of uh, students so to speak and uh, the only kind of unofficial rule was to practice patience but later other, others joined the order of monks and nuns, and you know they weren 't fully freed, and so they were acting out in inappropriate ways, and the Buddha had to promulgate the rules that guided the life of the community <clears throat> but it 's it 's interesting that patience was considered enough of a enough of a rule, uh, all the guidance you needed if you were really wise. Just practice patience. Um, I like to say. Or well, I don't like to say, but I do say, uh, <laughs> for me, uh, I, I think I was born without the patience gene, and uh, impatience is has been my default setting my whole life. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm, I don't know, it's just, it seems like it's my innate essence, <laughs> you know. Although I don't even believe in that, it feels that way. Impatience, so. I've I've really had to take it on as a, a conscious practice that this is something I really have to uh, just keep foremost in my uh, mind because I when I see that I'm reacting more often than not it's something to do with impatience. At first, I used to just blame the person uh, <laughs> who was causing me to feel impatient, but it's got nothing to do with the other person or very little to do with the other person. It's all about the momentum in our own mind. So one of the things that I have done to help me get a handle on my impatience is, um, first of all, when I'm impatient to get someplace or get going or do whatever, get something over with, I then look and see, you know, okay, either we, you know, either we satisfy my impatience or we don't. And more often than not, even if we don't satisfy my impatience, things get done in a timely fashion. It's just kind of a worry that they won't get done or it's kind of an impatience to get on with it and get it done. And all that is extra suffering. I just check it out. And the other thing that I do when I'm impatient and waiting to kind of get going or finish it up or wrap it up is I practice waiting with awareness. Whether it's in the grocery line trying to wait to check out or waiting for somebody to finish shopping (laughs) or (laughs) waiting for them to do anything. It's just waiting patiently with awareness. Because waiting is a really good practice. You're not doing anything except the mind is racing and the body's standing still. So practicing that with awareness. The other thing that I've done is is I've practiced going outside and connect, if possible, going outside and connecting with the immediate sensory world of what I see, what I hear, what I feel in the environment. Because, you know, all you got to do is go outside and connect with a tree. It's like, that tree is the personification of patience. It's not going anywhere. You know, it can't hurry the rain, it can't hurry the sun. It's just there. And, you know, it's kind of like tree practice, you know. <laughs> Consider yourself a tree. You know, sink your roots into the ground and let... Things come. I mean, it's well. It sounds kind of like get real. Well, you know what? That's getting real with impatience and really, really working to identify it, work with it, and be mindful of it as it as it occurs. I encourage you to uh, really notice your impatience and practice patience. It's uh, it'll give you a lot more time in your life.
1: So just continuing on that a little bit, it's interesting how Steve, you know, he says he doesn't have any patience, but he married someone whose name, actually my birth name is Patience. (laughs) So, Paciencia. So, um, but, but he can't get away with, you know, just because he gets it through marriage that he doesn't have to practice. And the other wisdom, the real practical wisdom for me is that, don't take Steve shopping with me. Just (laughs) leave him home. (laughs) So I want to talk about truthfulness now. Um, There's this time in my practice when I was so um, affected by the understanding of truthfulness, and it stays with me today today. It's it's like a bright light to me. It's when I was doing my first long retreat um, with Sayadaw Upandita many years ago. And uh, there were people, of course we're all practicing together and we did some group interviews and there were people in the group that were saying how they were practicing, you know, not um, not there was no wandering mind at all, all totally able to be with the breath and then whatever they chose as the object and they could sit and walk many hours during the day. And um Seda Upandita had a, a person that would go around and check things out, you know, kind of like the the Dharma spy, you know, his his <laughs> kapya and he would let he would let know what was really happening. So that evening, after this group interview that we had, um, Seidao-ji gave a very admonishing kind of a talk, which I always appreciate being woken up, you know, in some way, or really taking a good look at myself. So he said, how can you expect to open to the truth if you can't speak the truth, if you can't stand on the truth. And, of course, this was my great aspiration, to open to the truth, to see things as they are, to experience that peace beyond all conditions. And so uh, I really began to pay attention to not just speaking truthfully, but being more precise about it. So I started to practice then. And it's carried over into my life to a greater degree than if I didn't have this teaching from him. So in interviews with him, I really started to look how long I was actually sitting. And I would say, well, during yesterday, in the past 24 hours, I sat these many hours and 17 minutes, you know, I just really got my mind into the habit of being very precise so that also when I handed down my inter- my um, report to him in, during the interview of what had happened in the past 24 hours, it was very, very precise it wasn't it didn't mean that my mind was tight i mean some people think that tightness of mind is the same thing as precision of mind precision clarity comes with that mind that can be relaxed and open so being very precise about what was happening and very truthful even having to say to confess as you know i came from a catholic tradition to confess what was happening where greed was arising, impatience or uh, various kinds of aversion, and to report it in a very, very truthful way. And how it arose, the reporting had to be with how it arose, noticing how it changed and noticing when it disappeared. You just had to be very clear about all of that. And so that clarity of having to report that way actually helped me to see life that way, very clearly, even in daily life, being able to see cl- uh, clearly what's going on in a moment, not just situationally, but moment-to-moment-wise, to cut through the um, you know, kind of concepts and see moment-to-moment experience, even in daily life. And so that precision of truthfulness was so helpful to me to be able to um, be clearer about what was being experienced. And I remember also talking to uh, my other teacher, Munindraji, about things that I had read or ideas that I have and he would always say, what's your experience? You can't live in the experience of another. What is your experience? You can take the experience of another, overlay it as a concept into your experience, and think that you're experiencing that, but it may not be so. What's really happening? And just really forced me to say the truth, of that my heart was breaking, or that... I was unhappy with something, that it wasn't all as I thought it might be because I was living somebody else's high truth. So the truth, seeing the truth of your heart is so important to just open to, be with. I appreciate um, my life together with Steve and other people in my community that we're able to tell the truth to each other. We're able to say things like, I'm practicing patience. And, um, you know, it, it was really awful to feel that aversion to such and such an experience and have a degree of humility, a great degree of humility. It, it takes a lot of humility to be truthful, a lot of honesty about yourself. that 's enough, thank you
0: I guess the last one that we really want to say too much about is uh, aditana or resolution, uh, because meta and equanimity we have offered you those practices. I think sometimes uh, resolution is 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 really not very well understood uh, in uh, in, in our contemporary uh, culture. And sometimes someone being really resolute sounds like, well, they're just stiff-minded. You know, that they're really not very open-minded. They're just kind of stuck and stiff. You know, we have some national examples of that. <clears throat> but that's not really the only way that resoluteness can be um, developed. I think that uh, in, in our lives, it, because we are, uh, on the path of awakening, and uh, it is all about clearly recognizing the direction of our aspiration. And it can be, you can just articulate it as just becoming a better human being, or you can be more refined in your articulation of that aspiration. And then resolutely pursuing that. Resolutely moving to do what's required to manifest that aspiration in your life. And, you know, making a resolve, so to speak, is just a reminder to you to just, okay, you know, just to come back on track whenever you find yourself off, just to come back on track, come back on track. What we Something that Kamala and I have both practiced formally and I see the effect of it in our life is based on the knowledge that resolution is actually a quality of mind that can be developed. It's like a mental muscle. You can develop develop resoluteness just like you can develop mindfulness, you can develop tranquility, you can develop energy, you can develop loving kindness. You can develop resoluteness you can practice strengthening resolve and there's a formal practice that we were taught by our teacher Saito pandita and in in the at the height of it you know when you're practicing this resolve he would he would say to me now i want you to try to uh, i want you to make the resolve to do x or to do y and i would just laugh right out loud at him and say well that's ridiculous i can't possibly do that that that's I hardly even know what you're talking about. But, you know, he'd say, oh, just try it. But because the development of resolve was so strong, I would sit down, do what he said, you know, make the resolve to do something. And even though I did not believe it was possible, it would happen. That's how powerful resolve can be. Even if you don't have faith or even think it's possible, if the resolve is in the mind, if the resolve resolved muscle has been developed, and you do it with good intention, of course, you can surprise yourself. There are all kinds of opportunities in life to be resolute about what we're doing, whether it's dealing with an addiction or dealing with a <coughs> excuse me, uh, a weakness in our practice resolve you just 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 do it you know you cultivate that capacity of mind to just stay on task or stay on track and it rewards the reward of it is a steadiness of mind really powerful really good Uh, we don't want to take up all the time we wanted to give you all an opportunity to ask any questions you might have or Make any comments about these paramis and how you might, either how you experience them in your life or how you might practice them in your life, um, outside of intensive retreat. So, comments, questions? Yes. From you. Yes. So the question is about formal practices of these other paramis, that there is the formal practice of metta and loving uh, equanimity that we have offered. For many of them, there are formal practices. It's a little too much, right in this context, to offer them, but um, certainly with generosity, you know, the way you approach generosity, how you reflect on generosity and how you review your practice of generosity... uh, What's the other one? Renunciation is, you know, there are many kinds of uh, renunciation, just re- practicing in your mind, you know, uh, reformatting the mind. Um, yeah, for example, uh, a lot of these, both sila and ren- renunciation, uh, they you know, if you took a period of... Uh, Monastic practice, or just coming on retreat, just coming on retreat—that's a commitment to renunciation. You know, you just give up a lot in order to be here. So it's, it's it's using little things. And some of you might say, you know, you know, half a day a week, or one day a week, or one day a month. I'm going to do practice. That's giving up that day of distraction for practice. So it's it's finding what works for you. What 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 is a reach for you? What is a little bit more of a commitment for you in each of these? And then taking it on, learning from that, and, and, and going on from there. Yeah. Yes. Yes, the... The request is for a suggestion on where to learn about the teachings of the Buddha directly. The book that I would recommend, and I'll write I'll, I'll put this on the bulletin board, is Word of the Buddha, translated and edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which is a compilation of the best of the Buddha, you might say. <laughs> Any quotes that you've heard of the Buddha's teachings, it's in that book. And the in Bhikkhu Bodhi, gives a great uh, kind of a, an essay at the beginning of each chapter to just kind of put these actual words of the Buddha in a context of the whole path of practice, how the Buddha saw the world and how he understood the path of practice. It is, well, let me just be humble, it is a fantastic book. <laughs> it is the best book I've, I've seen on the Buddha's, on the Buddha's words. Especially for us, you know, uh, kind of beginners and householders. But it lays out the whole path from first interest to ultimate awakening. The question is about more formal practice of generosity. Kamala is going to speak about practicing generosity this afternoon. I think you'll find it very helpful.
1: Yeah, Yeah. well in the beginning I didn't go away for three months and it, um first I was very aware of how my hair was on fire with the Dharma I was very aware of that that I really I had very strong aspiration to open my heart to understand the truth and so, um my aditana, my resolution, was very strong to do that, and that may not be for everybody, you know. So we we just take it in as slow, slowly, in the way that feels comfortable or right for us, and also for our families. So what happened when I first um, began to do retreats is I I really made sure that everything was okay with my family. Before I would go, and sometimes I would make a decision, say the first one month retreat that I went to, I had to prepare for that for one year. I made the resolution before a year before, based on Munindra's, my teacher's um, recommendation to do a one month a longer retreat, and so um I had to do a lot of things just this is just reality. I had to make sure that all the bills were paid for that month, you know, so I had to save a little extra money every month to pay for that month's bills because it's not just paying for the retreat, but it's paying for the expenses and to make sure that uh, my children were all okay uh, during that time. There was actually um, uh, their father taking care of them during that time, and I had four children And the youngest was four years old. And for me, because she was in safe hands, I felt okay to go. But for others, it may not be right to do that. Um, There was just a lot of practical preparation of making frozen dinners and putting them in, in the freezer for that. But I tell you, when I went to that retreat, I had to make every moment count because I thought, i would I may not ever be able to do this again. It was such a big oomph for me to get there and um and now, this is about resolution when I got there, because I knew that I might not be able to do it again, and this is where I heard the whole thing about standing on the truth, and I was just so inspired to to put a lot of energy into it um I, I sat in the hall. I didn't go to my bed. I sat in the hall all night long. That was my resolution. I'm not expecting anybody to do that, but that may be, that may be in your heart and you're not touching base with it. So um, there was a, a time when maybe after a week and I said, you know what? I'm not going to my bed so I sat in the hall, and I, I would fall on the ground, you know, and then I'd, I'd get myself back up, and then I'd, I just would keep turning the mind towards seeing the truth of that moment over and over and over again. And that was a very powerful retreat for me because of that resolution, because of that kind of balanced energy that I was willing to put into the practice and so when I went home, it was like the Dharma was always with me. And um, then practicing at home made the Dharma seamless to me so that the next time I went into practice, there wasn't a big difference between sitting and walking or tying my shoes or eating my food. You know, there was it, it just came. Uh, the boundaries kind of disappeared more. So you can do it. It it's doesn't have to be that uh, foreign an idea. And you'd be surprised how much help comes if you go for it.
0: So the question is is one way to deal with the craving for approval is one way of dealing with that to renounce it if only we could you know uh, we 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 like approval we like to, and and we read the cues the social cues and the professional cues of what is approved um, we, we were very, we, we were attuned to them very subtly. But I think more than the need for approval, you might look at what you do that is really uh, coming from a place of integrity and where you start to shave your integrity a little bit in order to get approval. Because that, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes, you know, our inner sense of what is appropriate for us is this, but it doesn't get approval. You know, it's kind of like, well, you you don't, you know, either others don't agree with you or you get some pushback or you kind of look like you're a little different than those people and so it kind of like you feel a little... Isolated or a little ostracized, whatever. We do that. We 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 adjust ourselves. You know. You know. We want. Sometimes we want approval so much, we will go against our own wisdom. That, well, that's not going to be good enough to to free your heart. You know. So, I would say, pay really close attention to your own. um, What 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 is acting and speaking. In alignment with your own inner sense. How how much integrity can you have in speaking and acting? And doesn't it's not like you have to be you know kind of push others away, but you know be willing to accept disapproval. Be willing to accept disapproval. You know when I when I got the urge to go to Burma and just like I I just had to find out what practice was about, and I just you know I was you know. I had, a bi- I had a business with a year's worth of contracts ahead of me, and I had a, a relationship, and I had financial obligations and social obligations, family obligations. I had all kinds of stuff. you know, but I just said, "You know what? i got to do this." and I took, I took a year to kind of tie things up, you know get, my, get separated, tie up my business, hand my contracts off to other people, do, 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 put everything in order, and then I went because that's what I needed to do. I did not get a lot of approval for that, frankly. I got a lot of, like, questioning. I mean, there was those that I knew here were very approving. Oh, great, you're going to practice. But, you know, family and friends and social connections and business people, they, well, they, were, they didn't know what the heck I was doing. They thought I was nuts. But I knew I was acting with integrity. But it wasn't, you know, it was, it was challenging to, to act in the face of their questioning doubt and disapproval in some cases. So the question is about how do you tell others who might not understand where you're coming from, how do you tell them about decisions that you make you know, that are going to affect your life and maybe affect their life? Um, well, commitment to the truth will help you decide what it is to say. And then, to the best of your ability, uh, speak what you feel you need to say to that person. And you might, you know, check your expectations, you know, the, of check, check them at the door. You know, you might think, oh, they won't understand or they won't approve. But you know what? If you're coming from your heart, you're speaking from your heart, what's true for you, people can really expand their, uh, their understanding for you. Don't, don't don't be afraid to to say what's going on for you, you know if you're not saying it out of fear well or out of trying to protect them or thinking you know projecting that they they might not understand or they wouldn't approve well you know certainly uh if you don't tell them they won't they won't approve, but you know take a risk too i I, I would say take a risk sometimes because you know what. Everyone has, within their heart, maybe deeply buried and they've never felt it, but we all have you know, the archetype, if you will, of the renunciate, the spiritual seeker, uh, the one who lives uh, with their personal truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is. We all have that. We all have that somewhere inside of us. Even factory workers and elderly people and those who are incapacitated and those who apparently have never done anything like that in their life. If you speak the truth that that's where you're coming from, you'd be surprised at how much they can resonate with. <laughs> Even though they wouldn't do it and they couldn't do it, they can appreciate where you're coming from when you choose to do it. I okay. think It's 11 o'clock. Let's wrap it up. And you can have a half hour for walking and milling about and then uh, have another sitting at 11.30 to kind of let all this talking quiet down. Then this afternoon there'll be uh, some additional, as you can see, there's some shifts to the schedule. Oh, yeah, by all means, keep the silence. Some of Some of you might have a a strong urge to kind of, whatever, Um, watch that, watch that. There'll be time uh, tomorrow, but uh, for now, please keep the silence and and let your own process work, Uh, let your own awareness work with your own process.